0: Hey there, welcome to another episode of Coffee in Space. As always, I'm Dan Smith, your host. I am so glad you're here today. I'm going to talk today with an author that I think you're going to find as a particular treat. Uh, This is kind of a companion episode to my interview with Nikki Manbeck a few episodes ago. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. So once you've listened to my interview today, uh, go back and uh, pick up uh, Nikki Manbeck's episode. And the reason this uh, follows well with that episode is because... Melinda Hippel, my guest today, uh, is published by the parent company of, uh, uh, owned and operated by Nikki Manbeck, um, <clears throat> the uh, Imperium Publishing line, and that r- publishing relationship uh, led to the Raven, which is we're going to talk the book Raven, which we're going to talk about today. Um, but Melinda Hippel is a novelist, poet, illustrator, and editor, author of Raven, Homefront, and Behind the Mask. She was a winner of 2014 Mormon Prize for Prose. Her poems and short stories have appeared in numerous print and online publications, including three poems anthologized in First Water, Best of Purine's Fountain. She was an editor of Japanese short-form poetry for three online journals and has published the chapbook In a Bottle of Ink, which includes haiku, tanka, haibun, and a primer on writing short-form poetry in the Japanese tradition. Melinda received her B.A. in creative writing from Baker University. She was the 2016 editor of the annual literary magazine Watershed and edits poetry and novel manuscripts for other authors. Her artwork graces a number of covers, including Floodwater by Connie Post and Ribcage by Joan Colby. Melinda B. Hippel, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Coffee and Space.
1: Thank you for having me. appreciate being on the show.
0: One of the things that I always like asking authors as soon as they get here is how they take their coffee, as <laughs> you know, the name of the podcast would suggest. Uh, however, you don't drink coffee. How do you take your liquids, let me ask?
1: <laughs> well, I am a tea drinker over a coffee drinker, uh, but otherwise I drink coffee and 360 double chocolate vodka.
0: Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we uh, we just escalated the conversation a little bit. That's good. Um, well, it goes very
1: well it, in tea, by the way.
0: <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I bet it does. Um, and then you were showing me your mug earlier. Um, that uh, And folks, obviously, I don't do video with this podcast, but the really fun thing was that the Like a Good Editor... The mug says, I am secretly correcting your grammar. And I think, <laughs> uh, you know, any type of witty sta- uh, witty statement like that is always kind of fun.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I'm hoping that you, Melinda, are not going to judge my podcasting style too much uh, as we go through this interview.
1: Absolutely not. <laughs>
0: um, one thing that impressed me about you as I kind of got to know you before the interview is that, you know, most most authors, especially traditionally published authors – Kind of write in one, maybe two genres. Uh, and usually they re, kind of revolve around the same theme. Um, but you've written in several different genres, subgenres, um, historical fiction, you've done nonfiction. And then, of course, with Raven um, and its pending series, you've done science fiction. So, um, aside from me being impressed by you expanding into different uh, genres, how has that been for you as a writer?
1: My favorite um, genre is, of course, sci-fi. That That's really where my heart has always been since I was very young. Um, some of the genres I've written in more recently are actually one-offs. The historical fiction was one I could not resist doing simply because of the information of the, the, the things we found when my mother passed. Um, <clears throat> she had left diaries we did not know existed, from her time in World War II, working as a Rosie the Riveter, actually. Oh, um, awesome. There were letters from her brother and um, military letters, etc., from when he was fighting in, in Europe. Um, so when we found all of that, it was one of those things where I, I just could not not write it. Right. Um, but that's not a genre I would typically, typically delve into. Um, children's books, those came about when my son was young and some of those we actually did together. Um, and poetry has always been an interest. And so, yeah, I, I do still write in uh, poetry, but I always come back to sci-fi. That's, that's my love.
0: Well, speaking of sci-fi, um, uh, one of the things that you shared with me in an earlier email exchange is that you were... Let me get the quote right here. Um, I am a sci-fi nerd from way back, weaned on Bradbury, Asimov, and Clark. How does that first of all, tell me about that love because you know we recognize <clears throat> i think I think pretty much everyone recognizes, anyone fan any fan of science fiction recognizes that these three authors um, are definitely some of the foundational writers of the the wider genre. Um, what did they, the three of them mean to you specifically as you were growing up in in reading and enjoying sci-fi?
1: I think for me, especially early on, um, uh, cause I grew up in the cold war. Um, I remember the Cuban missile crisis. I remember a lot of fear. We lived in the Midwest in the middle of, of silos, um, missile silos. And so for me, sci-fi did two things. One is it offered some hope for a future in various ways, but it also was very strong at offering um, warning signs of, you know, if these things progress to a certain degree, um, we, we literally could destroy ourselves. And so I saw it both as the canary in the coal mine and a way to kind of overcome some of my own fears when I was young. Um, Also, Bradbury in particular, he's probably my favorite from childhood, and one of my favorite books of his is actually not sci-fi, Dandelion Wine, which is extremely relevant to my own childhood, and so I really connected to his writing style and to the the things he tapped into. Um, And all three of those authors, for me, I think, connect to the human condition, even if they're writing about aliens and they're writing about other worlds they're still really bringing in what it is we have to deal with um on a day-to-day basis politically socially in our relationships so yeah that all kind of came together for me at a young age
0: so i was on the tail end not to say either of our ages but i was on the tail end (laughs) of the cold war myself as a kid um Mm -hmm. Uh, born in the seventies. And, and so when I was really cognizant of where we were in the world, um, you know, it was kind of on us. We didn't know it at the time, probably, but it was on its way out. Uh, and then early nineties, when I was in high school, um, you know, really, it was pretty much over. Um, and then we, you know, even in my early Navy days, we weren't planning for a Cold War style war anymore. It kind of had already moved on by the late nineties, early two thousands. And so, um, But I kind of grew up on that too. Neville shoots on the beach was one of my first reads as a kid. Um, the postman, David Brent, I've mentioned those two books several times on this podcast and other places. I think I, I like what you hit on there about how those writers, um, whether writing about, you know, alien worlds or apocalypse, uh, they really showcase the human condition, um, And then I don't know how you feel about it, but sadly, I think that that human condition continues. So, Uh,
1: yes,
0: (laughs) yeah. I mean, there's just uh, you know, every as the uh, recovery people say, every everywhere I go, there I am, and uh, there we are as humans. Um, How does that? How does their writing, without getting too much into Raven itself yet, but how does that? How did their writing? How does their writing influence you today?
1: Um, I do believe that Raven is still a human story. Um, And again, without getting too much into it, I am a pretty good observer, I think, of um, people um, and their interactions. So I do try to incorporate a lot of that into my stories um, of all genres. And I do think that, again, being able to take something that you know is a, a circumstance or a, um, a particular sociological issue and being able to extrapolate it out to its best or worst is um, is just one of the things that I really connect to.
0: So the interesting thing uh, I found as I kind of got into Raven was, of course, the dedication page. I like reading them. Some people, you know, skip all over that and skip the acknowledgments and all that kind of stuff. But I like reading sometimes because you can find little snippets about why the author did what they did or who was their, you know, influence. And you pick three authors from old um, to to call out in your dedication – I mean, that's a big deal. People tend to reserve dedications to their families or their spouse <laughs> or, you know, a, you know, a grade school teacher who told them to never give up on writing or something like that. But you pick three writers from the early days of science fiction or the early days of modern science fiction. What statement were you trying to make by doing that?
1: Um, not necessarily a statement as much as an homage to um, because they were my inspiration. And, of course, Bradbury and Asimov um, fiction is what I read from them. Carl Sagan, I read any science, uh, legit, you know, true science book that yeah. I could read from him uh, when he first started publishing. Broke His Brain, Dragons of Eden, etc. But he wrote one sci-fi book, and that was Contact, um, and I read that book to my son when he was very young, actually, that was our bedtime story for several weeks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so seeing how he had incorporated what he really probably believed was legit good science into his own story, um, kind of inspired me to try to do the same. And I love science. I'm not, I don't have the aptitude for it but I love to read about science as long as it's written mostly for the layperson, (laughs) so that I don't get too lost. Um, And I do want my stories to be plausible. Um, Yeah, we can stretch things a little bit here and there, but I I don't want to go too far over the edge and I don't write fantasy. That is one thing that I enjoy, but I I just don't connect to as a writer.
0: I think there's a big push in in, uh, today's science fiction to be as as accurate as one can be. I think in earlier times, they, you know, we, we didn't have the wealth of knowledge we have now. So it's kind of, you know, whatever you wanted to write about, it could be true, you know, space right. flight and all that kind of stuff, alien worlds, mm-hmm. um, people that, you know, aliens that looked a lot like us, things like that. But, um, right. <laughs> uh, but I do think there's this push, uh, in recent years to be ever more accurate. And, uh, and I'm kind of like you, I, I got to be able to understand the science because I'm not, I'm not one myself, a scientist, but I do enjoy it. Um, And I do a lot of research. I I write short stories and uh, still waiting on, you know, professional publication for them. But like, uh, you know, I focus on robots and and things like that and and getting AI. So AI is a big thing that's changed when Mm -hmm. uh, Asimov was writing about his robots. They were, you know, just a figment in his imagination, really. Um, But now we know a whole lot about robots are actually more AI now than they are (laughs) robots. And so uh, trying to be accurate with that, I like that point that you brought out. Um, Before we get to the book itself, Raven, let me ask this question uh, from the author perspective. Besides writing, what is something else you're passionate about?
1: From from a very, very young age, I was an artist. Um, Like from the age of two and a half, I was drawing birds that my mother saved, and they actually looked like birds. And even though that was not my interest, that was kind of the direction I was pushed all through my childhood. Um, And so writing kind of became a secondary thing, Um, even though that was my passion at the time, still is. But the, the artwork tended to impress people almost more immediately. So that's what everybody latched onto. And that's what I became for a number of years. I still love art. Uh, I was an art major the first time in college. Um, but it's it's not what is really in my heart to do. I do the illustrations for some of um, Nikki's Imperium Publishing, other authors, children's books in particular. So art is a passion, Um And it does incorporate it it is incorporated to some degree in some of my characters and the writing as well. Um, But yeah, that's, that's number two on my list.
0: It actually does figure in pretty uh, impressively. Give me just a, let's turn now towards Raven. I love it with this follow-up question. How does this passion, this other passion of art, how does it filter through into your writing?
1: Um, well, in the... Okay, so Raven is divided into five sections, basically. Uh, and each section concentrates on a a separate colony going in a separate direction. Each one has a main character that's the focus of that section. And the first colony ship, uh, Jillian, is the main character, and she is an artist. So I began the story with someone that was not... Uh, technologically focused, because I wanted, again, to bring in that, that human connection, the human condition. Um, and it plays a part throughout the story, throughout the book. But her, her character is an art director and in charge of um, the artistic endeavors in that particular colony. And some of the connections that she makes are not just her own art, but through other artists as well. So, yeah, that's uh, that's one yeah, of the that's, ways it's been brought in.
0: That's neat. Um, I've joked with my wife. It's kind of a joke. I don't know that it's really a full joke, but I've said <laughs> to her, um, uh, you know, if they open up future Mars travel and I'm still alive and they're willing to take people who aren't scientists, but who just, I don't know, I'll run the community podcast. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if they open Mars up, I'm gone. Uh, you know, even if it's a one way trip. Um, and so I, I think it's interesting, you know, I think another, uh, I think something that we are learning about ourselves as a, as a culture, as a whole, if there is such a thing is that when we get to the moon or Mars for the first time for realsies, um, it's going to be mostly science papers and you know discoveries and things like that there isn't going to be i mean that's what we learned through the moon it wasn't you know no you know uh biographer went to the moon with them no uh no artist drew sketches based on uh what he or she saw outside the lunar uh, lander or anything like that And i think the same thing is going to probably happen at mars even when we set up an early colony it's going to be it's going to be a lot of scientists and engineers and you know people with mechanical inclinations as well, but it's going to be work-based, I think. Um, That's
1: a good possibility. The only thing I would suggest is that if you are making it a trip where you have the opportunity to return, for instance, if we go to the moon and we're we're setting up the scientific, even Mars, there's that opportunity to return. But when you're taking a microcosm of humanity and you're, sending them out of the universe, sending them out of the solar system into the unknown. Mm. I would hope we would have the foresight to include um, people of all of the humanities and people of other disciplines besides just science. I don't don't think our, or I don't think that society would necessarily benefit without having some well-rounded people on the mission.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And at the very least, I guess, People who, like you, have more than one passion, uh, you know, it may be a scientist by day, as it were, and an artist by <laughs> night or something. Something in the humanities as well. We can't – I don't think we can just focus only on science or we're right. going to be super boring people um, yeah. because you can, <laughs> so be yeah, yeah, you can only do so much. it would
1: be a pretty bland society in the long run.
0: Yeah, you can only do so much. You can only do so much work before you got to find something else to pursue, I I'd, I'd think. Yep. Um, okay, so let's turn to the story. I'm going to read this synopsis, and this is the one that's freely available uh, online, and I'm going to get some kind of first takes. We'll talk a cou- about a couple of the characters and the story itself, and then you know, we'll kind of go from there, but, uh, but I want to read this uh, a short synopsis here. As the head of Odyssey Central bids farewell, five separate colonies brave a decades-long journey into deep space. Soon separated by light-years, each crew faces challenges posed not by the rigors of space, not just by the rigors of space, but by connections made before the day of leaving. One crew member's pre-flight effort to improve the bio-recycling systems mutates into a nightmare, while another, driven by revenge, corrupts the very heart of the artificial intelligence platforms their lives depend on. Isolated in the harshest of environments, the Chang, the Hawking, the Einstein, the Newton, and the Kepler each find themselves in a deadly race against time. Tell me about that. How did this story develop?
1: Um, interestingly, the idea came to me when I was in my early 20s. And I started writing. I really didn't have an outline. I don't write with an outline anyway. But I started writing on the story. I had a few chapters in and then we moved and I lost it. Um, I have a real hard time of regurgitating something I've already spit out. So at that point in time, I couldn't recreate what I'd already written. So then decades went by and the opportunity came available for me to spend real time writing. um, And I started over again. And at that point, I had a beginning and an ending. I had the idea of these five colonies, the idea of the connection between them that would infiltrate all of them, even though they were no longer um, within reach of each other. But I sat each particular section. I had two I wanted a certain ending for, two I wanted a different ending for, one, um, and I'm not going to say too much because I don't want to spoil it, but I would start at the beginning of each section, and basically, knowing where I was headed, I still let the character drive the middle. Um, I wanted to be surprised, because to me, that's the best way to surprise my audience. Um, and they don't do well with outlines. To me, it takes the spontaneity and the, the fun out of writing. Uh, that was the same way in school. I always wrote my papers, and then I'd go back and write the outline for the teacher <laughs>
0: So, yeah. I'm a, as we call it, a pantser myself. Yep. I, uh, <laughs> it usually takes many, many drafts of a story before it's actually ready for anyone to actually see it. Uh, yep. To start what I would say is probably the real editing process. Yeah. Uh, I have to find the story and the the diamond and the rough as it were. Um. So since that is how you write, uh, <laughs> did you find the redrafting, rewriting, editing process to be more difficult for Raven uh, than you might have had? Or or was the story set pretty well in your mind and you were able to kind of proceed from there?
1: Um, once I had finished the first run of the manuscript, the story was, was set. Um, but I had a lot of work to do. But by the time I had gotten to that point in my writing, I'd been through workshops online and in person. Um, I'd had feedback from various teachers, people, etc., to the point where I can take criticism very, very well. And in fact, I crave it. If it's going to make a manuscript better, I really want to know. Um, so I don't let friends and family read it because they're going to be too nice. <laughs> so yeah, the, the rewrite is a major thing. I think I probably rewrote Raven 20, 30 times as far as like just tweaking. Yeah. The original manuscript actually was 150,000 words, which is epic. Um, It's now 70 or somewhere around there.
0: That's a lot of cutting.
1: Yeah. Well, the first section of it, and this is kind of interesting uh, because I had written the first section before the colonies ever leave Earth orbit. And then I realized later that that was unnecessary. If I needed something from that particular part of the manuscript, I could sneak it in as backstory. And after I had done that, and in fact, after Raven was published, I read a book by Orson Scott Card on how to write science fiction and fantasy.
0: I love that book, by the way. Yeah. And I've he
1: talks that. about world building mm-hmm. and how you have to, especially if it's sci-fi, fantasy, et cetera, you have to know your world. And I realized after reading through that, that that 30,000 words I lopped off initially was my world building. It did not need to be in the book, but it did need to be in my head. So it was important to actually write it, but just not include it.
0: Yeah, I have found in my own writing things that I wish I had known when I was a younger man and a younger writer. Is knowing where to start a story and knowing what, because I do free flow a little bit at the beginning like that. And I'll write, you know, you know, some random line, you know, when his third son died of pneumonia or whatever. That has nothing to do with the current story, but defined that individual as a as a character, um, knowing how to cut that back out later while keeping the emotional response that's based off of it. Exactly. became quite the trick and, and one that I'm admittedly still honing. Yeah. Um, so you do start your story. Uh, there's a, there's a prologue, but chapter or part one, chapter one, uh, starts with Jillian, uh, a character, a, a non-scientist character, non-engineer. Right. Um, and Jillian remains a focus, uh, for several chapters uh, for her ship's um, section uh, and then reappears periodically throughout. Um, How did Jillian make her entrance, first of all, in your head and then onto the page?
1: Um, Trying to decide how much to talk about Raven itself uh, because Raven is really the focus of the entire book. Um, And I wanted the initial connection to well and i can't say initial because there is in the prologue the reference to the fact that this raven character is created um, and disseminated unbeknownst to. but when i get into the first real lengthy section i wanted uh, raven's first interaction to be with a non-scientist i wanted there to be something a little deeper that could maybe evolve into uh, a friendship, some kind of a relationship that was not based on just pure science.
0: Yeah. And, and Raven uh, getting to the main character and the main uh, force of the novel uh, and the namesake of the novel um, doesn't make a, it doesn't really make a traditional high I'm here entrance how did you how did you decide to do the the way? How did you decide to make Ravens' appearances uh, not quite cryptic, but um, but almost ancillary at first? Why no flashy "Hi, I'm here" type thing?
1: Um, again, I think it comes back to the wanting it to be a human story. Um, I'm that, that's a little bit tricky to answer because I don't know that I actually thought it through in that way as I was writing. Um, Again, I focused on the human characters, but Raven character became integral to each of the stories. Um, Raven plays a bigger part in some sections than others, I will say that, but is important in all of them. And yeah, I don't know. That's, that's a tough one.
0: Yeah, and it's tougher because I don't want... We try and stay spoiler-free here, (laughs) so I understand the issue. Uh, I will say that uh, I liked the way Raven was introduced. Uh, So, you know, for those listening, I don't want you getting scared away by the fact we don't want to talk about it too much. But (laughs) um, I think you'll enjoy what you're seeing. And I think you'll see uh, how Jillian plays a role throughout, too. Um, Did your characters help you write the story? I, I assume, okay, I'm going to assume the answer is a little yes, because you're a pantser. Yes. <laughs> um, so t- I guess maybe I'll ask instead, how did the characters help you write the story?
1: Um, it's interesting when I do try to come up with a character for anything uh, is I, I actually either have a person I know um, or a person I'm familiar with in like on the big screen, a character, an actor, an actress, an actress, that I've seen in multiple roles, um, I, I will try to have something that I can center my characters on that I can go back to. If it's physical attributes, if it's personality, etc. Um, and so each of the characters in the book is literally based, loosely, on um, someone in my life or in the public domain. Um, and when I start with the character. I do let them lead me. I try not to be too confining, but I try to get into their skin as much as I can. And when a a situation comes up, it's, okay, how would this character react to it? It's not, what do I want to impose on the character? Um, So I try to become a little bit of an actor myself as I'm writing.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating to me. I do try and see, like if I'm <clears throat> writing, a, I'm, I'm working on a post, well, kind of an apocalyptic story right now about uh, set in modern times. But if a nuclear war had blo- broken out in 1983, it's kind of what I'm going from. Uh, and there's some mm-hmm. historical basis for that, too. Again, I w- at the time, I was too young to realize it was happening. But uh, as I've learned more about uh, apocalypse and apocalyptic writing, I realized that you know, we weren't all that far away in 19, the this fall and winter of fall and winter of 1983 was kind of an important year for nuclear uh, Holocaust survival, as it were.
1: Yeah, we weren't all um, that far away in the 1960s either. And
0: we were definitely not that way. In fact, Alan Robach, who I've had on the show before, thinks that we were closer in the 60s uh, than we were in the 80s, even though both U.S. and Soviet right. had better missiles and technology that could have done the job faster at that time. Right. Um uh, we were actually closer to the trigger uh, in the '60s, but uh, either of those two type things. Uh, mine was 1983 as a kid, mm-hmm. and so um, so I chose to focus the story there. Uh, but I do try and see myself as uh, almost fly on the wall type of thing, where I'm actually watching the the characters and the scene unfold mm-hmm. instead of cognizantly staring at my you know computer screen. Uh, making myself write. And, and that's just a function of who I am as a writer. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that's kind of what you're talking about, but um, so we talked about the, the characters helping you write the story. What did you learn about yourself in writing uh, about these characters?
1: Probably when it comes to the, to Raven in particular, because Raven is actually the first manuscript I ever wrote. It was not the first book I had published, but it was the first one that I, I got down um and i caught myself in one of the characters in particular um finding more of myself on the negative side than i had initially thought about okay. um so i wanted one of the characters to be me when i was younger one to be me when i was more adult well the me when i was younger as i start getting more and more into her character i'm realizing She was was not necessarily the nicest, not nice. Mm. That's not the right word, but she wasn't as likable as I might've thought I had been back in that day. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was kind of an eye opener.
0: I think it's interesting that you just admitted (laughs) something that wasn't like, I mean, everyone's like, Oh, I found out how strong I was and stuff like that. And it's (laughs) like, no, I kind of, I was a jerk. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I appreciate, uh, I appreciate your candid honesty mm-hmm. there. That was, uh, it's very good to learn. Um, I assume in finding, uh, the older you, the wiser, more mature you in another character, you realize that there was good change that it yes. happened. Yes, yes, for good. sure. Yeah, I like, uh, redeeming value whenever possible. <laughs> I think it's really neat. Um, okay. So let me ask this then, uh, what's next for you as an author?
1: Um, I am actually into the first sequel to the Raven series. Um, I have four books planned. They will all be standalones. You won't have to necessarily read the previous ones, um, but three of them do connect pretty strongly. Um, and I'm, I'm about a third of the way into that. I keep getting interrupted because, you know, my time also is spread between editing and um, I'm currently trying to do some illustrations for another author's children's book. Um, So, yeah, it's a matter of me being able to say no at some point (laughs) so (laughs) that I can make my own time. Uh, But hopefully I'll get back to that very soon.
0: So uh, as a pantser, um, when you say you've got four books planned total, what does planned mean?
1: Well, I actually have... Well, except for the one that I'm currently working on, which, again, I'm about a third of the way into what I would consider to be a pretty decent-sized manuscript. Um, The other two, I've written uh, a chapter or two for each, and one of them actually started as a short story. But when I finished Raven and I started getting into the others, I realized it could be expanded, but it is a connected story to these Hmm. characters.
0: That makes sense to me. Um, Melinda... Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been very, very insightful, and I've learned a lot today.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate being here.
0: How can people learn more about you and your writing?
1: I have a website, which is pretty simple, melindabhipple.com. And then I have an author page on Amazon um, through Imperium Publishing. Of course, Nikki has my books on their website, Um, and also the Nook website, which her bookstore, um,
0: and you have social media as well.
1: I do, but I'm really bad at it. Um, (laughs) I do have a Facebook page, a page, and I mean, I have my personal one, but I also have the author artist page. Um, and I often don't even check it once a week and I should,
0: I'm on Instagram. I check
1: it a little more frequently, but I'm really bad at social media.
0: I'm I'm not super great either. I think it's hard for an author, especially an independent author, to be good. You're either like super good at it, or it's just yeah. there. Yeah, I now,
1: I'm a writer. Matter. I'm not a marketer.
0: And, yeah, and, I have the same. Yeah. <laughs> both with my writing and my podcasting, honestly. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I will. I'll link to um, your website, your Instagram, and and probably a, a page on. Well, first of all, the book link is going to be to. The Nook bookstore anyway. Okay. Um, so that, that'll be a way for people to find it. Okay. So folks, uh, thank you for listening to this episode. It's been a joy to talk to uh, Melinda Hipple here. And I, uh, again, check out those links. Check out episode 107. That's also linked in here. That's where you kind of, it's kind of the partner episode for this one, uh, where I interviewed the, uh, the owner and publisher, uh, Nikki Manbeck. Uh, It was a good talk as well. Um, I hope that you will get a hold of Raven. I I think that you are going to enjoy not just how Raven is introduced, but also uh, getting to know Raven as a character. And and so I encourage you to do that. Use the link to get it from the Nook bookstore and support an independent bookstore uh, and an independent publisher as you enjoy the story and then i invite you to come back next week and uh, have another cup of coffee and space with me as we talk with another author i'll see you then